Amen. So January 17th, 2011 was when my, my dad passed away. It was actually the year that we moved into to our building. And he was kind of a, a self-made guy. Uh, he held a job at Sikorsky in, in uh, Stratford and part of the, um, the engineering department, but he never had a degree in engineering. He just kind of worked his way up and ended up as a bigwig in the engineering department. And he got kind of tired of that, so he decided to go into financial planning, and he just kind of bought a bunch of books and read the books and took the tests and became a financial planner. And he was a pretty successful financial planner. But he suffered from a disease, and that disease was alcoholism. And to watch somebody uh, in the throes of addiction, it's, it's, a, it's a horrible disease uh, to witness and, and to, to be a part of. Now, during the times he was healthy, and what I mean by that, like, like he had control over that disease, um, again, he was very successful in, in everything that he did because he was just kind of that, that kind of guy. I um, mean, he was very generous. I remember once um, I got laid off. Now, the, the company would say I got fired, but I say, oh, no, I got laid off due to probably some economic downturn of the world environment. I'm not quite sure. But anyway, um, he came to our house, and, uh, you know, he was chatting with me, and he said, well, how much, how, many, how much are your bills every month? I'm like, Dad, I have no idea. He goes, well, let's figure it out. And we got the mortgage and electricity and gas and, and daycare and blah, blah, all these things. And he came up with a number, and he took out his checkbook, and he wrote me out a check for two months of bills. He said, this is going to help you get through, so I don't want you to stress as you're looking for a job. And that's kind of, that's kind of who he was. He, he had this mantra of he never lent money to anyone. If he was going to give you money, he was, he was going to give it to you. Now, when he got to be about... 60 years old through some series of events in his life, um, things took a, a real turn for the worst. He lost some relationships, like people, people died, and um, he, just, he just became uh, depressed. And, and, and when you're an alcoholic, when you're, when, you're, when you're suffering from addiction, those low times in life, the, the addiction seems to really rear its ugly head. And so he began to self-medicate even more with, with alcohol. And, it, and it's just a, it's an ugly cycle of depression and more alcohol to help the depression. And the alcohol causes depression. And he kind of, he kind of went through this, this time and, and things began to really come undone. And things began to, to fall apart for him. And eventually he lost his job. He lost his home. He lost all of his money. And he, he lost his, his, um, his health. He slowly, slowly, slowly deteriorated. Um, he died alone in a very small, run-down little apartment. I remember that morning, like when you find the parents passed away. You, he wasn't answering his phone on Sunday, Monday morning. I went to see him, and that's when I found him. Uh, I remember I was talking with Don Romanski. And um, I called him back. I said, hey, this is what happened. And Don was there. And you, you just like, you don't know the value of like having someone walk with you through that. Because that's something that, that you never, ever forget. It doesn't leave you when you come and you find um, a parent or anybody who's died. But he died alone, broken, broke in a very small apartment. Now, he taught me a lot of things that I like, still remember to this day. 
Like, I remember one morning, we used to live in Oxford by, by this lake called Swan Lake. And, and when you're in eighth grade and you live by a lake, you can't get any, like, it's the best situation ever. But we had some rules. And so we couldn't leave the house, my brother and I, until 9 o'clock in the morning. That was the rule. And we had to be home by dark. That, that was the way the kind of things fleshed out. And before we left, we had to make sure we did our chores. Now, for those of you who are young and you don't know what chores are, those are things you had to do around the house for free in order because you are part of the family. Okay, that's what a chore was. You didn't get paid. It was, oh, you live here, you're going to do this. Now, one of my chores was to vacuum. I had to vacuum every other day. I had to get the vacuum cleaner out. I had to do the dining room. I had to do the living room, and I had to sweep the kitchen floor. That was part of my morning chores before I can go out at 9 o'clock. And usually my brother and I, we were at the door waiting to click, and then we were gone. And back then there were no cell phones. Like, we were gone from 9 to 9 in the summertime. My mother had no idea and seemingly didn't care where we were for 12 hours in the day. But anyway, so I remember one morning, it must have been a Saturday because he was home. And so I'm flying around, I get the vacuum cleaner, I plug in and I head into the living room and I'm just like whipping around. All of a sudden the vacuum cleaner shuts off. I turn around, he's holding the plug. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm vacuuming. He goes, why? Because <laughs> you told me I have to vacuum it in order to go out. Well, why are you vacuuming? Dad, because you said I have to vacuum. Well, see, the object of vacuuming isn't to vacuum. And I'm like, I'm like 12. I'm like, what? <laughs> he goes, the object of vacuuming is to clean the carpet. And see, so you clean the carpet by vacuuming. But it's not just to vacuum. He goes, let me show you. And he plugs the vacuum cleaner back in, and he starts at the beginning of the, of the uh, living room. And he's almost like in a grid-like fashion. And then he steps forward, and he does it this way, and he hits the, under the, the, the um, sofas and then down the line. He does the whole thing. I'm like, and he goes, do you see how I did that? Yep, I unplugged the thing. I start ripping up the cord. He goes, what are you doing? I said, you just cleaned the carpet, so I'm going to go outside. He goes, my son. Now, when he said my son, I knew that there was something that was going to happen that I did not want to happen. He goes, I want to give you the opportunity to practice now what I have showed you. <sighs> Fine. Plug in the vacuum cleaner. Start at the door. And I'm grid-like fashion, and I get three steps in, and I'm moving. I'm thinking, I'm nailing this thing. Boom, the vacuum cleaner goes off. I turn around. I'm like, what? He goes, what are you doing? I said, I'm vacuuming. And he stares at me. And I stare at him with disdain because now it's 9.05. <laughs> He's five minutes into my time. And he, we're just looking at each other. And I went, oh, you, you want me to clean the carpet? He just smiled, plugged the vacuum cleaner back in, and there I went, nice and slow. Got to the couch. I remember this morning, I must have sucked up a quarter or something because I went put tank into the vacuum, and I turned around to go, hi, and he wasn't even there anymore. He had gone, lesson learned. Now, now I remember this because Tuesday I came into the building, and you know we had the snow last week, and the building was a mess, and I started vacuuming. 30-something years later, I vacuumed the same exact way. I, just, I find something very therapeutic about it as I just go through the dirt, and then you step forward, and just at the arm's length, just, just to get enough. He, he taught me a lot of those things that I still remember. Going down a snowy hill in your car, you take the car out of gear and you pump the brakes slowly. How to tip a waitress or a waiter. You know, you put, you put the money in and then you give them some ones and fives and so they know how to keep it. I know that we don't pay with cash anymore, but back then we, we paid with cash money and, and, so, and not debit card and all these little things. 
See, I, I believe my dad did the best he could with the things that he had, and, and I've learned a lot from him. But the way we respond to things that happen in our lives play a very major part in who we are and who we are always becoming. And towards the end of his life, he was a self-made guy, and he wouldn't accept help. He wouldn't accept um, even to, to go to AA meetings or to see a doctor about him being so depressed. And because of the way he died, I have this deep conviction now in my heart that I will finish well. I will finish this life well. In the midst of all my brokenness, in the midst of all my, all my junk, just like my father, hey, he wasn't a perfect guy. He fought his demons. He had his faults. We all do. But I want to finish well. And what I've learned is that finishing well is a series of steps that we take in life throughout our entire life. Ending well is a culmination of, of our life, our life decisions, the thoughts we engage, and the steps that we take every day, each and every day. All our actions lead us into a very certain direction. It brings us to a certain point. Every decision we make has consequences within our lives. See, the reality of the story is that this life for every single person will come to an end. It's just the way it plays out. We all will give back to God the breath of life that he gave us at birth. And so how will we finish? Will we finish well? Will we finish strong? This is exactly what the writer of Hebrews is getting to as he continues this letter, as he's winding the letter down, as he's writing in chapter 12. The church, again, is going through some tough times, and things are going to get tougher for them. And he wants them to take steps towards God, not, not away from him, toward him. Even in the hardship, even in the pain, even in the brokenness, step toward him. Don't run away from him. Because those are the steps that can lead a person to finishing well. And so the last time we met, we kind of ended our time in Hebrews 12, verses 12 and 13. It said this, Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. And again, he's, he starts off... Uh, Chapter 12 with this idea of a great cloud of witness. It's, 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 uh, he's painting this picture of a coliseum and there's, there's races and games taking place. And he says, when you've come to the end of it all, when you don't have any more strength left, when you're ready to quit, don't lose heart. Do whatever it takes to strengthen yourself because by doing so, you may strengthen others around you, and they too may not lose heart. They too may be able to finish the race strong, to finish well, because again, we all will come to the end of our race. We all will stand before the Lord, and it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you believe about the afterlife. What the scripture tells us is that each and every person will one day stand before God. Our life here on this planet will come to an end. 
the race will be finished. And so he wants to encourage them. But he also wants to give them principles of how to live this life well in order to finish well, in order to end well. And so he continues as he writes to them. We'll start in verse 13. It says, make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. Make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. See that no one is sexually immoral or godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the eldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. All right, so let's kind of unpack all of this and what the author's trying to say. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may be disabled, may not be disabled, but rather healed. This race that we run, life, life and, not, and, and in our faith is never meant to be run solo. This is not a solo journey that we're on. We're called to run together. We're called to run in the context of community so that we can help ensure that all of us live well and that eventually, when we get to the end, all of us will finish well. The weak help the weak. The weak help the strong. The strong help the weak. And every other possible combination that you can come into. See, this is about community. This is about belonging. This word up here at the bottom, belong, isn't just a really cool word with arrows. We believe that a rhythm of a disciple is to belong in community. Because we need each other. It's not a solo race. We're having our first small group leader training January 17th, Tuesday nights. And we're going to be offering small groups come mid-February to the end of February. I encourage you all to get involved, to deepen your relationship with Christ, to be allowed to, or to get to know people and to allow yourself to be known by people. This is what belonging is. We're in this thing together. We need to push against this 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 plague in America of, of individuality. And I'm not saying that you were just like, you know, the Borg. We're all just one big common collective. No, I'm talking about, I don't need you. You stay away from me. I'm gonna do my own thing. We have to let people in. And we have to, we have to actually step in to other people's lives. Not like a jerk, but out of love. Out of what Christ would have for us. See, we hang tougher when we hang together. We allow ourselves to be helped in the weaknesses that we have, and we help others with the strengths that we have. We're called to run this race together so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. We all got some lameness somewhere in our life. And then he goes on, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Make every effort to be in peace. This journey that we're on of faith is about pursuing godly things, moving in, 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 a, in, the, in a godly direction. Now, what the gospel of Christ says is that we have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. 
so that you don't get to say, look how good I am. Look how many Bible verses I've memorized. Not only do I go to one small group, I go to them all. I'm that good. No, 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 you don't, you don't get to brag that way. It's only by the grace of God that we have been made at peace with God through Jesus Christ. It's, it's a standing that we have. Because of the cross, because of our faith in Jesus and his work, we are now at peace with God. We have been reconciled back to him. But here's the ugly reality about humanity. There are many times when we are not at peace with each other. There are many times where we're just kind of bumping heads and we're just, you know, arguing and we're just not getting along. Conflict, divisive conflict. I've seen it in the church and it's ugly. Some of you have also experienced that in church world and it's ugly. I'm going to make a really broad, big statement here. Conflict that brings division in the body of Christ brings glory to Satan and disgraces the Lord our God. When Christians fight and argue, I'm not talking about good debate, um, ideas and things like that. That's, that's, That's healthy. But when we become divided from each other through conflict, it brings glory to Satan and disgrace to God. I believe there are a few things that grieves the heart of God more than and and stunts the movement of the Holy Spirit in the church than conflict, divisive conflict within the body of Christ. Look Look at what the psalmist writes. How good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. How good, how pleasant it is. It's like precious oil poured on the head, run on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar of his robe. When they would pour oil on the high priest, it was an anointing. It was a sanctification. There was something sacred and holy about it. That's what God, that's how God views the unity of the church. It's holy, it's sacred. There's an anointing that lives there. It's, it's, it is as if the dew of Hermon We're falling on Mount Zion. There's this freshness about it. There's this um, life-giving posture about it. Because there, the Lord bestows his blessing, even life evermore. When the church is in unity with each other, God pours out his blessing. Live at peace with one another. These are rhythms that encourage a life that's well-lived. Make every effort to live in peace. And so we journey on this faith journey, making every effort to live in peace with each other, to strive for it. This, this statement is like an aggressive statement of going after your enemy. Make this a priority. Make sure this is your focus. It's a common theme throughout Scripture. Paul talks about it in Romans chapter 12. He talks about it in Romans chapter 14. In Ephesians, he writes, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The church coming together. The church living in peace. Even the words of Jesus in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. 
pieces about well-being, that we would live in the sense of well-being with one another, pieces about prosperity, that we would be living generously with one another, that we would be generously giving to the brothers and sisters and allowing yourself to be given to by the brothers and sisters, pieces about um, having the security, a trustworthiness of relationship. Make every effort to live in peace. It's a, it's a willingness, it's a deliberateness in a way to live. Because those who, those who are deliberate with this idea of peace, those are the people that forgive. Those are the people who are thoughtful and kind and helpful. Those are the people who pray for those that get under their skin and don't gossip and argue with them. And what he has done, what the author has done, he's kind of connected this idea of peace with, with being holy to connect, uh, to, to move in this direction of holiness and peace. Holiness is, is a, a purity of the soul, a pureness of, of heart. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. And then right after that, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. Peace and holiness, they're just intricate parts of a, of a human soul, a human heart that is traveling well on this, this journey of life. And when we begin to live in these rhythms, we, we, know, that, we know that there's the, the, we make every opportunity and possibility to end well. We pull these principles into our heart and soul. See, to finish well is to end well. I mean, I'm sorry, to finish well is to live well. To live well is to make holiness and peace a priority. Not perfect. No one is perfect. If you're perfect, then you're probably just a perfect liar. No one is perfect. But we make these things a priority. We press into them. We give it our best. It's in, it's in front of us. And we want it. We desire it. But then as he's laid out this principle of peace and holiness, he wants to warn the church, here's what I want you to engage, but now be very careful for these next things. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God. See to it, again, a command. See to it that no one falls short of God's grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor toward his children. Grace is that thing we don't earn. God just freely, he freely gives it. It's an outpouring of his blessing upon his children. Now you should know, and if you don't, let me tell you, that through faith in Jesus Christ, the grace of God continually pours over your life. You don't earn it. You don't produce it. You can't manifest it. God's grace is freely pouring over your life, even right now where you sit. Remember in chapter four, the writer said, let us draw near to the throne of grace with confidence that we will be given grace to help us in our time of need. Grace is that thing that, that, that puts our feet on the firm foundation. Grace is the thing that heals our heart and soul. Grace is the thing that strengthens us to move forward in the things of God. See to it that no one misses the grace of God. Nothing is out of bounds for, for the grace of God to come into your life. The deeper the sin, the more abundant the grace. Paul would write, where sin has increased Grace has increased even more. 
Now, <laughs> that doesn't mean you get to do whatever you want to do because, ha-ha, I've got the grace of God. Oh, nay, nay. In fact, if you have that attitude, check your heart because you may be in serious trouble. But there is no sin in the Jesus follower's life that is out of bounds for forgiveness and his grace to be poured upon it. Nothing. Amen. See, grace is that thing that stirs the heart and soul of a Jesus follower to follow Jesus. Grace is that thing that stirs the heart to answer his invitation to follow him and follow him even more deeply. It's the thing that encourages us to run toward him and not away from him especially when we've come to our senses in our sinful rebellion. He waits for us after our sinful rebellion, whatever it is, arms outstretched, willing to pour grace upon you. We don't have to run away from him, but that's what we do. We, we want to avoid the Father. Grace has now come to me even though you messed up big because nothing is out of bounds for me. Nothing is too big for me to forgive. So the writer is encouraging this church, be careful not to miss that. You know, I, I was thinking through this and, and there's, a, there's a few ways that this can play itself out in the believer's life. Uh, I believe to live in gracelessness is to live unrepentant of your sin. I mean, we all have it. If we say without, we are, we are without sin, as the scripture says, we make God out to be a liar. So we all have this, but to be unrepentant. It says to God, God, you keep your favor. You keep your grace. I got my sin, and I like it. What a horrible way to live. What a tragic way to live. To refuse the favor of the Lord. To refuse the grace of God. I found in my own life that when I neglect reading the word, when I neglect being in the scripture, it's almost like rejecting God's grace because in, in these pages, in these pages are healing. And these, this, this word is alive. This is the way God reveals himself to the church. This is God's grace. This is God's favor. He said, you know what, church? For thousands of years, I'm gonna make sure that you got this. And I'm, not, I'm gonna make sure it never goes away. I'm gonna make sure that, that the Holy Spirit will ignite something in you if you engage it and read it and you're willing to, to, to understand it. That you would be willing to understand who I am through its pages. This book is the grace of God and when we neglect it, we starve ourselves spiritually. And this is for the church. I will bet you that there's even people here in our church that neglect being in the word of God and you're neglecting God's grace and you're in danger of spiritual malnutrition and bad things can happen. You're rejecting again. The, God, you know what? I'm too busy. I got things to do. Besides, Stephen Kuntz's new book came out and it's a really good one. I don't need your grace. I don't even know if that's a real author. It just popped in my head. Is he a real author? Excellent. I don't look foolish. And as a pastor, I, I think I would be remiss if I didn't include taking yourself out of fellowship of the church. See, God's grace on us, it's, it's very, it can be very individualistic. 
Like, what his, his grace pours out on me may be very different for you because we all wrestle with different things and we all go through different things in our life. But it, this, this thing of grace is flowing and it's moving and it's meant to be experienced in the context of community. The grace of the Lord abounds when his people gather in unity. Did you see what its psalmist wrote? That there's, he pours out his blessing on a church that gathers in unity. There's power in this gathering this morning. Power in the gathering of the saints. Do you understand that? There is power when the saints come together in unity to worship God, to hear the word, to be with one another, to encourage one another. Our ability to understand the word of God, our openness to experiencing this grace is connected to our being, our belonging to community. Don't take yourself out of it. Stop making the excuses why you can't come. Say no to something so that you can be here instead of out there. Now, I'm not saying you should be here every, you should be here every week, but I will give you one or two weeks off. I'm good that way. But this should be a priority because the grace of God pours out upon us here, his favor, because we're with each other and we encourage one another. This is, this is a plural command here. This is not, um, pastor, make sure that people don't live gracelessness. No, this is for all of us. Man, if you don't see someone for a while here, call them. Reach out to them. Don't be afraid. If they take it wrong, that's on them. If you do it out of love, that's what Christ calls us to do. Be on guard that people do not live in this graceless atmosphere. There's too much of it out in the world. This should be a place of God's grace. And then we just, when we're filled up and when we're all squishy and gushy with it, we go out we pour it out to the world around us. Squishy and gushy. Like bubblicious. You know the gum we gotta chew really hard because it's just like, it's, it makes you aggressively chew. I digress, I'm sorry. He continues. See to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Now we have to understand what he's kind of getting at here because it's important. He's getting to this idea of idolatry and apostasy. Idolatry is saying, I'm going to make something in my life more important than God. And so that gets your worship. It could be your job. It could be your relationships. It could be your bank account. It could be your car, your house, whatever it is. If you make something more important than God, then you are an idolater. You are worshiping something other than God, and it's God and God alone that deserves our worship. And apostasy is about moving away from biblical doctrine to say that, well, Yeah, Jesus is a way to God, but there are a lot of other ways to God too. That's not what the scripture teaches. That's apostasy. You're moving away from doctrinal, biblical teaching, and you're moving into idolatry. The author is pulling from Deuteronomy 29. Let me read you from where he's getting his thoughts from. Deuteronomy 29, verse 18, it says this. Make sure that there is no man or woman clan or tribe among you today whose heart turns away from the Lord our God to go and worship the gods of those nations. Make sure there is no root among you that produces such bitter poison. Idolatry, apostasy is a bitter poison. And this root, it grows slowly. And the roots, they they go underground. 
and they and they 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 build this firm network and then before you know it it pops out of the ground and sometimes when it shows itself it could be too late in the community and damage is done and people have been poisoned this idea to defile means to that people are being pulled away from Christ don't let that happen in yourself in those people around you that you love See, these are steps to a life that begins to live well so that at the end, we can be assured that we will finish well. And then he continues on. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau, who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. So the author is addressing, in general, the appetites of this world, of the human heart. And he uses an example out of the Old Testament, Esau. Now, in, the, in this scripture, in, in this scripture, it doesn't tell us anywhere that Esau was sexually immoral. But if you begin to open up um, rabbinical, ancient rabbinical um, literature and even extra biblical literature that's not part of the canon of scripture, you can see stories in there where Esau was a little bit of a player. In fact, when he, there's a story that says that when he sold his birthright, he had come back from committing adultery. And that's why he was so hungry and just didn't care about his birthright. Now again, this is not scripture, but the writer from Hebrews seems to be calling on these extra accounts of who Esau was meant to be. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. Filling his stomach was more important than the blessing that he was to get from his father for being the eldest son. And that was a big deal in that culture. He was all about the earthly pleasure. He was all about what he can get and touch and taste and experience, and he fell prey to his earthly desires. He fell prey to the sinful appetites, and it ended up costing him dearly. He, he realized what he did. He went to his dad. Dad, please, isn't there a little blessing? And he was like, no, man, there, there's nothing. And I do believe that if he went to God, God would have forgiven him. See, that's what the scripture teaches us, doesn't it? That in our sin, we can go because of Christ and repent, and God will forgive. But you see, there's consequence to our actions. There's always consequence to our actions. And those consequences can build up. See, a life lived well, making, making the scripture, what the scripture reveals about God, its priority, builds up a certain type of consequence. And when we reject the scripture, we build up a certain type of consequence. And it will determine how we finish this race. So, in case you haven't figured it out, I am not a perfect guy. I'm not a perfect husband. I am not a perfect father. And <laughs> you can't even begin to know how I am not a perfect pastor. I keep that stuff quiet. But I have Jesus. Amen. And by faith, 
I have received his righteousness because I really don't have any of my own. But by faith, I've I've been given his righteousness. I am in good standing with the Father. I believe this with all my heart. Not because of me, but because of Christ. And on the day he calls me home, on the day my race is finished, I will be with him in eternity. I will be with him in his kingdom. But until then, he has given me this life. And he has blessed me to be a husband to an amazing woman. He has blessed me with children, a daughter and a son who I love very much. He has blessed me with the opportunity to pastor a church, which is laughable if you knew me anyway. He has a great sense of humor. He has blessed me with this life, and I I must admit that there are times I feel like at best I'm just kind of fumbling my way through. But I want to end well. I want to finish this race well. And I know to finish well means that I have to deliberately engage every day a life that makes living well a priority. That I would press into the things of the scripture. That I would do everything in my power to live in peace with people in our church, in other churches, and outside our church. That I would make every effort to live in holiness that I would make every effort to repent of my sin before the Lord and receive his grace. I don't want to be that person that holds his hand up to God and says, you keep your favor, I keep my sin. Again, that's a horrible way to live. I will do everything in my power not to let the ugliness and the bitterness of idolatry and apostasy take root in me and even in our church. I will do everything to to stand firm against the appetites of this world that can just lead us astray and, and, and cause us harm. Again, I'm not perfect. No one is perfect. We're all not perfect. But there are things that we can do to live well. And so ultimately, when the Lord calls us home, we will have ended well. I would encourage you to live well so that you will finish well. Father, I want to thank you for your word that you've caused it to be written. I pray a blessing over this church. I pray an anointing of the Holy Spirit upon the hearts and the minds of those who are sitting here this morning that they would be encouraged in their heart to move toward you in bigger and even bolder ways, to believe by faith that you are calling each and every one of us into deeper, intimate relationship with your son. Empower them, Father, to live well, that we may celebrate this life that you've given us in all its brokenness and yet all of its joy. I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 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 Next week, I will be giving you a year-end report of our finances. Woohoo! <laughs> Stay tuned for that. I love you guys, and I will see you next week. <laughs>